Hi there, we're running into another episode of uh, Culloden Christian Assembly Home Bible Study Podcast. And we're going to be looking at a new subject this time. Um, it's Andrew here. and We're looking at Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And we're going to look at some studies in the Hebrew epistle. We're looking forward to it. Um, a fantastic epistle. Even the very title gives it away. Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's all focused on the the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, and the one who came as a true and perfect man into this world. So we're looking forward to looking at these studies. Now, I've, I've set out eight studies, and I intend to do a podcast for each of them, or get someone else maybe to do some podcasts. Um, the first one is going to be Greater Than the Prophets. We'll be looking a little bit at the background of Hebrews today. Um, then we will be looking at the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Then we'll be looking at Greater Than the Angels, the second study. Greater Than Moses, the third study. Fourth study is going to be focused on understanding the warnings of Hebrews, which I think will be really interesting uh, to go through. Um, number five, we're going to look at a greater priesthood. Number six, a greater service. Number seven, faith's response. And then the final study, number eight, we'll look at the, the challenge, the final challenge that comes out of the last two chapters of the Hebrew letter. Um, we really hope you'll come along for the ride and, and that you'll enjoy uh, studying with us as we look at it with with every one of these we have our own um, PDF uh, handouts um, that, that we give out during the study and so if you contact me on um, com, uh, you can find me there um, or get to me there in some way or else use my personal email account uh, and williamson01 at yahoo.co.uk if you wish to receive the um, actual handouts for this home bible study okay that's enough now we'll, we'll crack on and we will look at this study together let's pray and ask god's blessing father help us as we look into your word we pray our father that as we think about the Lord Jesus and as we focus on him, we pray that our understanding of him might be deepened by this uh, letter. Our Father, we just commend ourselves to you and we pray your blessing in the Lord's holy name. Amen. So study one, greater than the prophets. In this study, what I intend to do is to look a little bit at the background of Hebrews and then hopefully sample the wealth of Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. It's just packed full of, of beauties about the person of the Lord Jesus. Beautiful truths about him. So let's uh, read the passage and then we'll look a little bit at the background and then we'll come back to this um, reading in a few minutes. So it'll be background and then a little bit of a breakdown of the book and then the beauties of Christ as seen in this epistle so first of all hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 to 3 we'll read the new king james version god who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by or in his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. 
when he had by himself purged our sins, or better, made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The title of this letter is helpful, Hebrews, or to the Hebrews. Really, we don't know an awful lot about the, the backgrounds, the circumstance of when the letter was written. Um, we know from the letter a number of things, but we don't know a whole lot of details. What we do know this is very clear from the letter that it was written to the Hebrews. If you read chapter 1 and chapter 13 especially, it gives us a bit of context. You'll notice, first of all, when you're reading chapter 1, that it doesn't start as many of the other letters do with an introduction to the person who is writing the letter. Paul or Peter or James or John or whoever. Although John doesn't really do that either much. But what we do have is God introduced. And so the focus of the letter is on God speaking. And God speaking to his earthly covenant people, Israel. But to a particular group among them, those who had trusted the Lord and accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Saviour and, and had moved away from Judaism in this regard. You'll remember the, the Jews as, as a nation opposed Christ. They, they said no to Christ. They crucified him. They put him on a cross and they said his blood be on us and on our children. And so there was a severance between the the apostate nation, if you want to call them that, the nation of Israel, as they reject their Messiah, and this group in the nation, if you like, who have accepted Christ as the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and have appreciated him. But they lost so very much. If you were to turn uh, to one of the chapters later on in, in the book, I think it's chapter number 12, Issues say chapter 10 and verse 30, uh, 32. But recall the former days in which after you were eliminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. Partly when you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. Partly when you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, joyfully accepting the plundering of your goods, knowing that you had or have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. What we learn from this passage is it's simply that, among other things, is that they had had a, a tough transition to Christianity. They, they trusted the Lord, and, and as a result of it, there was a great struggle with sufferings. There was They were made a spectacle of, and, and, and they were companions of those who were ridiculed and condemned and, and persecuted and, and they took joyfully the the plundering of their goods. In other words, they lost out in, in this material and physical sense by trusting the Saviour. Uh, and so this is a, 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 an interesting group of people that we're looking at here. Um, we have moved on maybe almost a generation now. Uh, it was many years ago, he seemed to be recalling the former days. Some of their leaders, it tells in chapter 13, have now passed on, have passed away. And they are to remember their leaders and remember the, 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 the great foundation behind their leaders, the Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. Uh, and so this is a group of people that we're starting to understand 
they have faced um, a background of Judaism, they're steeped in the Old Testament, and yet now they've come away from the traditional line that Judaism has now sadly taken, which was away from Christ, away from the Messiah. However, in saying all that um, and, 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 and bringing it out, you remember the whole Testament was absolutely saturated with symbol and shadow and type. And so the writer to the Hebrews is going to emphasize that. And he's going to show how Christ is the answer and the anti-type to all those shadows and symbols of the Old Testament. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So we have it to the Hebrews. And who is the author? Well, we don't know. Uh, it's an anonymous letter as far as we're concerned. Uh, some of the early writers um, and the early Christians said it was Paul. Um, within a generation or two, some were saying it was, it was definitely Paul. Others said it was Barnabas. There's a bit of credence to that view too. Um, wh whoever it was from, it seems very clearly from chapter 13... They know Timothy, they're, they're, they, they work with Timothy. Uh, it could well be that it was written by uh, one of the apostolic band. Uh, it would seem that that was true. It certainly has the stamp of the, apost the apostles upon it. Um, one other thing maybe that is, is, is worth mentioning there when we're dealing with, with this. It doesn't really matter a whole lot who wrote it. As long as we're convinced that it is part of the the canon of scripture it's it's absolutely everything about it fits in with the rest of scripture it like a lego piece it fits in uh, and it's it's such an addition to the, the 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 width of the canon it helps us to understand the transition between the old testament and the new testament in a unique and wonderful way and it has the same high what we would term high christology as the old testament uh, as the new other new testament books it shows christ to be not only truly human but be perfectly divine and that fits in with the other uh, writings of the apostle paul and the apostle peter uh, and everything else and, and this confidence uh, we can have because it tells us in, in in john chapter 10 for instance that my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me who's my sheep it's those who have accepted Christ for what he says in John's Gospel. He's, he's the I am. He is the, the all-sufficient one. If you believe not that I am, um, you shall die in your sins and so on. So he says, my sheep, those are the ones who hear, who recognize my voice. And so in the first centuries, it became clear to the early Christians that this was the very voice of Christ, the voice of the Lord that comes to us through Hebrews and so I've said enough about that for now. We can look at it in more detail if you want to at some point in the future. Um, but it's better for me to call the, the writer to the Hebrews just that, the writer to the Hebrews. What about the message? You see, the focus is not on the writer, it's on the Lord. And so the only apostle we read off is in chapter 3. The message is all about Christ. It, it's, it's about Christ being better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than all these different wonderful aspects of Jewish life. He is greater, he is far uh, more wonderful than anything that they are leaving behind. Now, they are leaving behind all the tangible things, and that's a hard thing. They're leaving behind a physical temple that, that the Jews absolutely adored. They're leaving behind the priesthood and, and the, the smell, the, 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 the taste of, of, 
of Judaism, the, the, the very touch that they would feel with their hands and, and all these senses were, were attuned to those things. They were brought up in Judaism. But now they're, they're, they have to turn from that and, and they're being ostracized from a, that and there's a danger. And he's going to point this out. There's a danger that some of these people will go back to Judaism. They will trample underfoot the, the, the Son of God. Now, could a real believer do that? No, of course they couldn't. The whole of the New Testament cries out against that. Um, if you're truly the Lord's, um, you know, if you're saved, as far as God is concerned in this purpose, you're justified. You're already glorified. So there's, there's so much in, in Scripture that teaches us. John would tell us. Paul would tell us. All the different writers would tell us that a true believer can't be lost. They're truly the Lord's, okay? But, but there's a real sense in which you can come very close. You think of a Judas. You think of how close he came to the Lord. You think of him doing perhaps miracles as they went out two by two in, in Matthew chapter 10. You think of, of how close Judas really was. And they didn't suspect him. Only the Lord knew he wasn't who he claimed to be. And, and so there, there is a sense in which there can be some measure of dissimulation or um, there can be some measure of even association with the truth and appreciation of the truth without any true heart commitment to the truth. And so uh, we're going to see that, that he worries because there's a kind of retardation at the minute happening where they're not necessarily embracing Christianity with a whole heart and turning away from Judaism and coming away from the old they're wanting to mix that in they're wanting to try and hold on to as much of their past as possible and this is a dangerous thing it's dangerous for those who have not truly trusted the Lord as yet and so he is calling them forward and so you'll see this let us I've mentioned this not only is the Christ better than but he's calling them he says let us uh, draw near, let us hold fast, all these kind of things. Uh, and he's, he is in, encouraging them, exhorting them. He says, suffer this word of exhortation. He's moving them to a new place. So the message is really those two big things, I think. It's a message about Christ and his greatness. But the reason he's giving it is to call them onto this New Testament ground and away from Judaism, which has rejected Christ. Now, more can be said about that later. What about, um, I've kind of covered the argument already, but he uses the Old Testament springboard to establish the greatness of Christ. Um, it, as I say, symbol uh, to fulfillment. Shadow to substance. Type to anti-type. Um, and, and so this is, this is really what we, we have happening uh, throughout. The audience, as I say, is an audience that seems to be mixed. There are There's a clear majority of them that he looks at in, in chapter number 6, and this is what he'll say in, in Hebrews chapter 6. Maybe we should mention this here. In Hebrews chapter 6, he will uh, mention... Chapter 6, he mentions this. Uh, and this we will do, if God permit. He's been speaking about uh, leaving aside the, the kind of... the discussion of the elementary principles of the Messiah... And let us go on to perfection. Actually, he's moving them from the old Jewish to the new Christian position. And he says, this will we do if God permits. You say, what's that mean? Well, we will do. He's, he's, he's using the general we covering uh, 
um, himself, who is he's evidently a a, a Jew um, who has moved from from one to the other, or is moving from one to the other. Um, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. We can't go into the detail of that. That'll we'll have to pause on that for another day. But you'll notice that those, he's saying, now there are those that won't move forward. In fact, they're going back. And they're crucifying for themselves the Son of God and putting him down open shame and so on. So he says there's we, we'll move forward if God permits. But there might be some among us, those who were once enlightened and, and who are now going the other way and who are going away from God and, and, and away from Christ. And, but then he says in verse number nine, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Notice, we are confident. This is we, the, the apostle the, or the writer, uh, are confident of better things concerning you. You are not those of verse four. You are those, the general company that he's speaking to things that accompany salvation though we speak in this manner he's just worried there's a niggle going on in the back of his head that there's there's this kind of reluctance to move on to fully christian grounds and so maybe that's enough to be said for now let's move from the background because it'll all make more sense i think when we get to the other end of these studies let's look at the breakdown down for a few minutes now, what we have here is is a, a tremendous argument. Uh, one of the most beautiful arguments. I mean, I, I love the Roman epistle and, and the argument of the Roman epistle, but there's something so beautiful and fascinating about Hebrews. Um, he is going to start um, just exactly where the people are. That's a good principle in itself. Um, and this in this logical, coherent argument, he puts in it a number of parentheses. Now, this, I really think this helps us to understand Hebrews and how it, it works. But I'll give the general breakdown and then I'll talk about the parenthesis just for a minute. I would say generally chapter 1 to 10 go together. And I suppose you could write over it, let us draw near, let us draw nigh. And there we have Christ the magnet. You see, they're being attracted and drawn back to Judaism. So what he does is he sets before them Christ in all his glory he shows him as a fulfiller of all those things behind. And yes, he is not visible now and they're being drawn back by visible and tangible things. He is intangible and invisible because he's not in their presence physically. He is with them spiritually, as we know. Um, we'll read that later on in the book. Uh, so what he's doing is he's saying, let's focus on who, how great Christ really is, who you have accepted as your Messiah, who you have... Um, professed that you're following who you have made the very foundation of your your life now and he goes on and he he focuses on christ the magnet as others people have called called him and the greatness of christ is is central to those first 10 chapters he'll look at it in lots of different ways then he comes to chapter 11 to 13 and 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 the focus there i think shifts slightly he he's going to explain faith and 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 tell us a little bit about it and then he's going to exhort them to as it were go forth eventually he'll say let us go forth unto him without the camp bearing his reproach in other words this is a practical outworking of it in their lives now, now having accepted christ as as the one that they are following and well they have to disassociate from judaism he was put outside he was put outside the the, the, the city, he was put outside the, 
the camp, wasn't he? He was put outside the gate. And there he is. He was crucified outside. But what he was doing there, he was setting apart a people with his own blood. So the symbolism is continued here. He is set apart by them in a sense. He is put outside and crucified. And what he is doing is he's setting apart a people that is distinct. Other other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. If you want a parallel kind of passage, look at John chapter 9, chapter 10, uh, around there in John's Gospel, where he is taking his his flock out of Judaism to join with others of his flock which are not of this fold and there will be one flock and one shepherd and that is really where he's going in the argument I take it of Hebrews so let's focus in now um, on uh, this this kind of idea of a brackets or parentheses that run these are sometimes termed warning passages though I've expanded them slightly and spoke of them as exhortation passages because there are some positive exhortations as well as warnings in them so you'll notice at the bottom, I, I borrowed this graph from, I think it was um, uh, Tom Constable's notes, um, or I think from Hebrews. Now, I'm not saying that I'll follow Tom Constable and some of what he says, so don't, don't be say, thinking that just because of barping this, that I necessarily adhere to everything he says in, on Hebrews. I'm sure I wouldn't. Um, so, but let's, let's follow it for a minute. You'll notice exposition, chapter 1, and then exhortation. There's a little part that comes in at the start of chapter 2. It's the begin, It's the first parenthesis where he stops in what he's teaching and he says, let's apply this. And he applies the teaching he's given. And that pattern continues throughout. I'll leave them for your uh, consideration. Um, chapter 2, 5 to 18. Chapter 4, 15 to 5, 10. Again, all exposition. Chapter 6, 13 to 10, uh, 18 exposition. Chapter 11, exposition. And over against those are these exhortations that continue throughout. So that's enough for breakdown. Let's move into uh, this uh, passage itself and look at I'm going to take about 10 minutes and think of some of the beauties of Christ in, in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. We'll read it again. God, who at various times and in various ways, spoken time past to the fathers by or in the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in you notice in inverted commas, his son, in son or in a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself made purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And you say it doesn't stop there. No, it doesn't, but I'm going to have to stop it there for the sake of today. So let's think of these verses just for a few minutes. <clears throat> what we have at the beginning is God speaking. Now this is helpful because what we're going to learn is that the Jews already understood that God had spoken. To them was committed the oracles of God. Um, they understood that God had spoken in the Old Testament. He'd spoken by the prophets. He'd spoken to, to their fathers. And now, how is this important to understand? Well, what we're learning here is that he has spoken again. That his revelation is not complete in the Old Testament. That there is addition to that. But in these last days he has spoken, 
verse 2, unto us in a son. So let's think about that just for a minute. What he's saying is this. He's saying that there is development of revelation. God spoke in the past. And he's now spoken again. He's saying there's continuance in revelation. The God who spoke in the past is the same God who has spoken again. He is not saying that the Old Testament is being replaced here or superseded in the sense that it's being set aside entirely. No, what he says is that the capstone has been fitted to the, the great building of Revelation. The foundations were laid in the Old Testament in many ways, but, but now we're reaching the, the superstructure. We're, we're seeing the, the development of that revelation. And how has it come about? It's come about by his son coming into this world. Now, the supremacy of God's son is really going to be emphasized here. And seven things are spoken about the Lord Jesus. You'll notice in time past is contrasted with in these last days. Or, um, yeah, in these last days, most most of the, the, the translators do it. Uh, at the end of these days, uh, some uh, like the revised and so on has it. But just, just to focus on, on, on these things for a minute. The Old Testament revelation was at various times and in various ways. And what it's really saying there is that, that God had given bits and pieces of revelation to the various prophets. He had given, as it were, little bits of the Lego or, or little bits of the, the, the jigsaw, let's say. Um, what has happened was they, they all came with their little bit of the jigsaw and you could kind of put it together but there were big gaps missing um, and so they all came with a little bit of God's revelation but it was all leading up to and waiting for the supreme revelation the sun coming and when the sun comes you have the whole picture now uh, and so now we have not just a, a piecemeal revelation if you like to put it like that I don't want to in any way diminish it but um, fragmentary we might say revelation now we have the full revelation we have Christ in all his fullness that's what he's saying he's spoken unto us not in the prophets merely but in a son one who is equal with himself and therefore able to fully exhibit uh, fully express him You'll know, know that from John chapter 1, verse number 18. We'll not stop there at the minute. Now, no, notice these seven things. We'll mention them just briefly as we go through. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. One. Let's think about that. He's going to go on and say, through whom also he made the world. So he was appointed heir of all things before God made the worlds. Before the worlds were created, he was already the heir. So behind this is the thought of, of a future a future time when, when that heirship will become realized, when the whole of creation will bow to Christ and he will have a preeminence. But he has said it in the future because before then, well, he has ownership. Before then, we have a whole series of events that are going to take place. He is appointed heir. But notice this. That means that the reason why creation was created 
was for him. Now we, we learn that from Colossians chapter 1 anyway, don't we? We, we? we learn that all things were created in him and through him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. So it was not only created in him, he was the architect. Uh, it was created for him, he is the aim. It was created through him, he is the agent. Um, it was created... He was before creation. He's antecedent to it. He he outdates and you know all time, space, and matter began to exist in the beginning. But he already was so so that again puts him outside of time, space, and history, and and it makes him an eternal being, and and so all these things are true of Christ, and he is the very adhere, adhering principle in creation, as he says, all things are. are by him all things consist or hold together. And so here we have the relationship between Christ and everything that exists. He is appointed heir of all things. Everything that was created by God is for him. Through whom also he made the worlds. Now this word for worlds is the word for ages. Um, sometimes it was used of the material universe as well. So um, perhaps the ancients understood um things better than we think they did so when we speak about the time space continuum and so on they understood that there was a relationship between time and space it seems because they they speak of the the ages as as a picture of the whole of the universe uh, and so through whom also all the ages were framed and formed all the world as we know it was brought into existence uh, existence through him he is the agent he is the active one who brought it into being it's the whole triune god Ahead that is working in the creation of this universe. God the Father who willed it, uh, the Son who brought it into pass, and through the power of and in the presence of um, and in virtue of the, the Spirit who is hovering uh, Genesis chapter 1. So that's number 1 and 2. Um, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now we have two more things said about Christ. Who being the brightness of his glory. Now this word for brightness is the thought of, I think Darby maybe translated as effulgence. The outshining, the outraying, uh, the radiance. Yeah, someone has said effulgence sounds nicer than radiance because um, radiance has a kind of cold sound to it. Now I don't know whether that's just an English thing but... I think radiance is very beautiful and I think the ESV is very beautiful here. Um, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And that's really stunning language. Um, for a Jew to be saying that, that, that there is someone who came from God, not like a prophet, not, 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 not merely a prophet, not merely it's his, his son and he is the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is a statement of the deity of Christ, that he is no less than God in human flesh. Tremendous. Just as the sun's rays partake of the very character and essence of the sun itself, they're an outraying of the sun in that sense. So he is an outraying of the glory of God. Now the glory of God in itself has this thought behind it. The glory, the the, the Old Testament spoke about the Shekinah glory but there was an idea of, of, of a glory cloud there was a kind of obscurity 
uh, associated with it. And yet not now, not now, because he is the very outraying of the glory of God. And then more. Not only do we have the kind of external, how, how he appears or how he reveals himself uh, to us and will reveal himself to us in the future. But what about his inner foundational essence? Because that's what we have in the next statement. He is the exact imprint of his nature or his substance, his underlying substance. Fascinating words that are used here in Greek. Uh, you can go away and look at them in your own time. But just as a a, a, a stamp has a, a and a die has a, a an imprint that it leaves that that corresponds to the die itself completely, uh, what he's saying is this is an exact correspondence. There is an exact correspondence between the underlying substance of God and, and his son. Now this is why um, we speak about um, God being one in essence because there, there is no inferiority with the son in, in any way in, in relation to his uh, essential nature. Okay, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Um, coming back to the New King James text, just for the sake of consistency, it goes on and it says this, and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is lovely. This is not just the fact that he, he holds things up. We, we showed a picture of Atlas. Um, you, you'll know the old, the old Greek God who, who is like straining under the weight of the world. Um, but that's not the thought here. First of all, it's his word that holds it up. Um, so it's not him himself in that sense straining under it. But there's even this thought behind the word upholding, which, which has the, 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 the thought of a, him being a helmsman, that he's guiding, that he's directing. He is directing the whole of, of creation towards its inevitable conclusion. He's upholding all things by the, the spoken word of his power. The one who's spoken it was done and commanded and stood fast. He is the one who is bringing everything along. And so you see the, the planets orbiting the sun. You see uh, the, the beauties of these great galaxies that have millions, billions, even a trillion stars in them. And they're all held in place by the spoken word of his bar. And if that's not enough, he says, when he had by himself purged or made purification for sins let's stop pause and think about that that the one who did all this with his word it took him to come into this world and suffer and die and take upon himself the the judgment that was due to sin in order to deal with the the defect that came in at the fall and this little planet Earth has caused more heartache, if we can put it that way, for God than the whole of the creation of the universe. And yet on the planet Earth stepped God's Son, the one who is co-equal and co-eternal with him. And he made the purification for sins. In other words, he, he dealt with the problem. He dealt with the disease. He rectified the issue. He is the way back into God's presence. 
And he, he will see to it that every vestige of sin is removed from this fair creation. And even those who are sinners, as we know, will be incarcerated um, out of his presence. And so he has dealt with this problem of sin entirely. He has purged. Um, it's not really the best translation. He has purged our sins. He has made purification for sins. Now, it's by himself. It's in what's termed in Greek the middle voice. And, and so the thought behind this is um, that he had a personal interest in doing that. He is the one who is drawing to himself a people for his own peculiar possession. Um, so he is the one who, who wants a people, special people for himself. And so he works to bring that about. And having done that, he sat down. Last, number seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the greatness on high. Now it's interesting at the end of this chapter. He's going to sit down by invitation. But here he sits down by right. It's his place by sovereign right. No higher place can be found in the universe. He passed by the angels on the way up. They parted for him. They bowed to him no doubt. They covered their faces and feet and cried, Holy, holy, holy. He passed right into the presence of God. And he took his seat. Active voice. He took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. No higher place can be found in the universe for him. He is on the throne with God. There is a man that's implied here. There's a man, the one who passed through death and judgment, came out the other side of death and judgment, rose from the dead. There's a man on the other side of death and judgment, and that is God's son. And he's at God's right hand now. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to have such a saviour? The right hand really signifies, it signifies power, dignity, privilege. It signifies a whole lot of other things as well. And he is there. In that place of authority. And he is your saviour. And he's my saviour. May this help us to worship him better. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. That's us concluded now. Uh, so next time we'll focus in on the rest of chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. And we'll think about him being greater than the angels. Thank you for listening to this podcast.